Welcome to All About Literacy, a podcast that explores topics and issues all about adolescent literacy. I'm Dr. Deb Van Dynen, an associate professor at Hope College in Holland, Michigan. And I'm Dr. Erica Hamilton, an associate professor at Grand Valley State University in Grand Rapids, Michigan. We're friends and colleagues in the field of teacher education, and we love to collaborate on research, teaching, and living life well. In this podcast, we'll talk with educators and literacy professionals in the field. We're so glad you've joined us, and we look forward to learning all about literacy with you. This is Erica. Welcome to All About Literacy. We've invited Dr. Troy Hicks to this podcast episode to speak with us about digital literacy. Dr. Hicks is a professor of English and education at Central Michigan University, where he teaches master's and doctoral courses in educational technology. He's also the director of the Chippewa River Writing Project, a site of the National Writing Project. A former middle school teacher, he has received numerous awards, including the Michigan Reading Association Teacher Educator Award and the Central Michigan University Excellence in Teaching Award. And Dr. Hicks is an ISTE certified educator and trained as a facilitator in digital storytelling through Story Center. He has authored dozens of books, articles, chapters, blog posts, and other resources broadly related to the teaching of literacy in our digital age. Troy, welcome to the podcast. It's so great to have you. Thanks so much for joining us. Thanks, Deb. Thanks, Erica. <laughs> uh, Eric and I will take turns asking you questions and we'll sort of just take it from here. But we are delighted we have our students read some of your materials in our courses that we teach at Grand Valley and Hope College. And so it's so fun uh, for us to be talking with you to sort of unpack some of the ideas that our students have already read and that we've encountered before. So let's start. Uh, Troy, can you tell us a little bit about yourself? We've heard this impressive bio. It exhausts me, quite frankly. Uh, but it has been formative in my own thinking and learning uh, about literacy education, and I'm so grateful for all of your contributions on a scholarly level. Um, but if you could just tell us a little bit about yourself, you can sort of figure out however you want to unpack that. But then also, what sparked your passion for digital literacy? I really appreciate that question, thinking about kind of three movements in my life, you know, when I was a K-12 student, and then when I was in college, and then moving on from there into my early teaching career. So the first story that informs my view on digital literacy was in high school. Um, I remember getting the, the first IBM compatible <laughs> Windows PC and um, my dad uh, requiring me saying you will sit down and type this research paper on the computer you know my mom had typewriters and you know was an administrative assistant and I I'd started to learn some typing skills and whatnot and had always used a typewriter up to that point but the first time I logged in with the big blue screen of WordPerfect and started composing on a word processor and using a CD-ROM uh, to look up some stuff about, I think it was a biology paper, that was pretty interesting and something kind of sparked there. And then the second movement happened once I did get into college at Michigan State as a junior, um, had a writing methods class that met at the writing center. And uh, from that, uh, I found my way into working as a writing consultant at the writing center. And there were a cadre of colleagues there that wanted to explore this new thing that we could do, which was create a web page and use email. And we had this group of what we called ourselves digital writing consultants. And uh, from there, we started teaching people how to create web pages and to uh, create more 
rhetorically sophisticated and stylistically uh, pleasing PowerPoints and things like that. So that was step two. And then I think I really became entrenched in digital literacy once I started my middle school teaching career. And I remember taking my students to the computer lab using this crazy front page program that the district had to specially install in the middle school computer lab because I wanted them to create digital portfolios and talking about things like HTML and uh, all that kind of stuff. And then from there, my path led back to Michigan State in graduate school and, and forward since then. So those are three moments that I really think sparked my interest in moving forward with digital literacy. Uh, Troy, I love, I can relate to some of those moments, even hearing some of those words that you say, some of our students will have no clue. Uh, our listeners might not have any idea uh, what those words mean, but I love thinking about how different those each sort of in some ways chronologically, right? How things have developed since then, but then across all of them, and, and this shows who you are as an educator and scholar, is this learning new things, right? And um, being willing to think out of the box and try on new things. So just wanted to comment on, while each one of those stories that you shared are different, um, sort of what unites them, what I'm hearing is just this um, love of learning and willingness to embrace and to learn new things. So thanks. So building off of that, um, and I can echo all of the things that Deb has said. I was, I'm not, I can't see it on the podcast, but I'm nodding my head like, yep, I brought my high schoolers in to do PowerPoints and, you know, three by five floppy disks and that kind of thing. Um, but I'm also then thinking, Troy, as you have think, talked about these movements for yourself personally, how do you see definitions of literacy changing over time? How would you describe that to someone? Yeah, this is a question we continue to wrestle with, and I'm going to start my answer with a non-answer and saying that I don't think things have really changed all that much. Uh, at the core, uh, literacy, reading, writing, listening, speaking, viewing, visually representing, sender, message, receiver. Sender encodes a message, sends it out, the receiver gets the message and has to decode it. Um, that is the simplest definition of literacy that I can come up with. And yet, even in calling it simple, we know it's really not that simple after all. And so when I think about a definition of digital literacy, well, literacy broadly and digital literacy in particular, I'm most drawn in recent years to uh, a recent uh, update from an NCTE position statement. And they talk about uh, literacies in the sense that we possess and intentionally apply a wide range of skills, competencies, and dispositions. These literacies are interconnected, dynamic, and malleable. And so from that NCTE definition, we can, we can unpack any one of those words, intentionally apply, possess, wide range, skills, competencies, dispositions and especially the interconnected dynamic and malleable. And I appreciate the way that we're, we're thinking about how nuanced and situational these things are, and also the wide variety of voices that can be shared. And so as we well know, you know, we, we, we were children of the internet era and we remember all the information superhighway on ramps and you know, AOL, you know, changing the world and CompuServe and all these great things. Um, thinking about the democratization of information and all these types of things. But now 20 plus years on, we see that it's a little more complicated than that. And sometimes different actors have different, um, you know, 
intentions. So I think, again, the, the definition of literacy at the core has not changed all that much. And yet at the same time, uh, it continues to change a little bit every day. And we need to be thinking about the different tools and spaces and um, the people with whom we're communicating. And that's the joy of uh, engaging in this work of literacy. Mm -hmm. Thanks, Troy. I, and I think you're right. Um, we can think about it as not changing and then also very different than at least how we talked about it, right, um, decades ago. Um, Troy, you have worked with lots of teachers over the years uh, who are still getting used to or new at thinking about literacy in the ways that you described. The NCTE position paper is one actually that Erica and I have our students read. And sometimes I feel like it's a little bit like a fire hose for them because it's lots of words and terms and ideas that perhaps they just haven't had opportunity to think about before. And so as you have worked with teachers and pre-service teachers over the years, and have introduced these concepts or unpacked them for them, what have been some misconceptions or learning curves you've seen as teachers have sort of tried these ideas on or wrestled with them? Um, maybe if you just wanna sort of talk about the misconceptions or, or areas that you have seen opportunity to help build their understanding. Yeah, I think one of the main misconceptions is this idea that we can rely on one protocol or heuristic that's always going to work to help us learn a new tool or to evaluate the credibility of a website or to have the perfect rubric for a multimedia presentation and that you know digital literacy is something that we we just know when we're able to do it um, it, it that's not the case I mean even in one space you know whether you take uh, a social media channel, whether you take, for instance, here's a good example. Someone will say, oh, it's on YouTube. Well, what does that mean? Because on YouTube, there are at least, you know, a hundred different genres. There's live streaming, there's teachers recording screencasts, there's professionally produced television shows that go live on YouTube. There's amateur people just making stuff up at home. So, um, we can't just say there's this one thing that is social media or is YouTube or is a Wikipedia article or anything like that. So I think relying on those protocols can sometimes actually be too confining. Oh, when was this site published? Who's the author? Well, that's not always the right set of questions to ask. So we need to be thinking a bit broader. And then the other misconception is that um, closely aligned to this is that if we give kids all the tools to consume, and critically analyze, and I'm, I'm using the air quotes right now around critically analyze, because again, it's not just a checklist that we go through. The idea is that, oh, suddenly they're gonna become digitally literate. As we well know, being readers and writers and thinking about what it means to be literate, we don't become those things until we do those things. And so Renee Hobbs talks about this idea of create to learn. And this whole notion that we need to give students opportunities for low stakes, uh, low pressure, probably even no grades, uh, digital literacy creation, rather than just practicing the habits of consumption all the time. So those are two broad ideas that I think about when I think about misconceptions around digital literacy. So that leads me to think about and I'm wondering, you may actually have already answered this question, but I'll go ahead and pose it and you can um, offer some thoughts if you like. So 
in addition to common misconceptions, what's something that you wish, or one thing or more, that you wish um, teachers knew about digital literacy? I think you've talked some about that, um, but broadly speaking to teachers, especially new teachers or beginning teachers, what, what's something you wish you, that they knew about digital literacy? I really appreciated this question too. And I struggled to jot down some thoughts before our interview to think about how to answer it. So I don't know that I'm I'm actually fully answering this question and, and you can pin me down on it and say, no, Troy, we want you to tell us something more specific. But there were three things that kind of came to mind. Uh, one thing that I wish teachers knew about digital literacy is that in the end, there is just way too much to know about any one particular tool or even about broad categories of tools. So, you know, even if you are, you know, pretty good at using the word processing functionality in Google Docs, you may not know everything in Word or you may know everything in Word, but not in Google Doc. And that's okay. You don't have to know everything about every tool, you just need to know some broad ideas and you need to have the, the tools to help students kind of become their own problem solvers because there's a thousand videos on YouTube and blog posts about how to make that one thing change in the font style in Microsoft Word. You, go, you can go figure that out on your own. I don't need to know that. Um, the other piece of that uh, puzzle is that um, it's kind of a two-part equation. One is that we, again, to go to that idea of creation, we need to give kids the time and space to play. Hey, you know, before we get into this super huge project where you're gonna be constructing this multimedia website today, I really just want you to try out the tools. We're gonna to log into Adobe Spark and look at Adobe Spark pages, make something. I don't care what you make, it's not graded. There's no pressure here, just go for it. And then along that same line, as we well know, there's that sense of, uh, what am I giving up in my classroom if I just let everybody go willy-nilly and do these things? And, and I think it's, a, it's tough. It's really tough. I'm not trying to discount it. Um, I know that giving up that kind of control and then feeling like you might be evaluated either directly by your principal showing up and watching you that day or indirectly by the judgment of your peers or your students is hard. But what I always tell teachers is that kids will figure out how to push your buttons, uh, both uh, metaphorically as well as quite literally, they will figure out what buttons to click in Adobe Spark or Word or whatever. Um, you have to have the sensibility uh, to guide them and ask the critical questions because you're the person with the college degree, you're the person with the life experience, you're the person that's read more and written more, you're the person that can ask them those really great questions. Oh, tell me more. What did you do here? Why did you make that choice? What was going on here? So it's not so much about knowing every in and out of digital literacy. It's about having confidence in yourself and confidence in your kids and knowing that you can ask the right questions at the right time. Um, already I'm thinking about what Erica and I do with our students and uh, we've learned this over the years. I think we're, we're getting better at it as we try to intentionally have our students create. We do something with infographics and digital tools for sketch noting. Um, but as a teacher, it's, it has been a little bit hard to give up that control. Uh, but we have heard from our students that they often don't have these opportunities to just play or just create and in these low stakes opportunities. So I really appreciate those examples and um, that sort of guiding principle. I love that, Troy, thank you. 
Um, I'd love to hear some stories if you're willing to share and if any come up um, as you think about what it's been like to work with teachers, new teachers, veteran teachers. But do you have any sort of success stories or stories that you like to share um, about teachers maybe who've had a really steep learning curve about this or teachers who are doing really innovative and creative things? What does this look like on the ground? Yes, yeah, so one of the parts of my work that I super, super enjoy, I, I just cannot tell you how much it feeds my own teacher soul is to be the director of the Chippewa River Writing Project. And in that work, I continue to collaborate with teachers in a variety of ways. And one of the ways in which I often collaborate is to give them what I kind of jokingly call opportunities uh, to try presenting at conference or writing a blog post or writing a journal article or ultimately writing a book. And so uh, when I was thinking about two teachers that I've worked with very closely uh, in the past few years and, and also right now, uh, there are two Chippewa River Writing Project teachers who came to mind. Uh, so first was Andy Shinborn at Mount Pleasant High School. Uh, he's A. Shinborn on Twitter, and uh, we'll get the spelling for your show notes and whatnot. Uh, but he and I co-authored a book called uh, Creating Confident Writers that came out just about a year ago. And one of the things that Andy does uh, is has students create what he calls blog folios. Uh, they, they create them on a WordPress blog site and he has them do a number of different types of writing over the semester. And then at the end, he you know has them put it all in one central place and hyperlink out to all their original blog posts. And these range from creative pieces to periodic reflections during the trimester to final projects um, uh, to links and, and things where they go out and analyze different things. One project that he has students create collaboratively is in the spirit of multimedia journalism where they look at mentor texts uh, from sources like the New York Times and see how journalists put together these large multimedia projects and then they create those and put them out um, as part of their blog folio. So that's great. And again, Andy centers um, so much of his work on uh, the idea of uh, poetry. And he has his students write poetry and then he publishes their poetry on his own uh, blog. So just using, you know, he does a lot with digital tools, but digital isn't like the core focus. Like digital is the means to the end. And so that's one of the things I really appreciate about Andy. The other colleague I wanted to talk about briefly is uh, Jill Runstrom, who is now at Skyline High School in Ann Arbor. And she's Jay Runstrom on Twitter. She and I are working on a book for uh, NCTE and one of their principles and practice books. And when we pitched the book proposal about a year ago around these beliefs uh, related to the integration of technology in English language arts, you know, oh, okay, we're gonna just kind of document you through the school year and all the moves that you make. And as we know, this 2020-2021 school year has been something unlike anything we've ever experienced before. And so not only are we documenting her curriculum and the digital moves that she would have made in any normal school year, we're also thinking about how she's adjusted for real-time class instruction through Zoom and then anytime class instruction where she has to create these asynchronous activities that stretch over a couple of days. And so Jill has been thinking really creatively about how to maximize the use of time, not just homework, like in the normal sense of homework, but what, how can I create scaffolded activities that help students get ready so when I see them again in Zoom two days from now, 
we can have a really intentional use of our time together and then I can propel them towards the next thing. So Andy and Jill are just doing outstanding work and I'm, I'm glad to have a moment to talk about my collaborations with them. Right, and we will definitely uh, encourage our listeners to look at both of them on Twitter and on their social media. Um, Troy, many of our listeners are ELA, uh, pre-service teachers or teachers, but also other content areas. And I'm wondering if you could say anything about, to, to just make sure our listeners aren't thinking, well, this is just something for English teachers to do, um, but is something as, you know, that is applicable and important and needed for math and science and music and art and so on. Absolutely. So one of the things that I've been working on this year as well is a teaching primary sources grant through the Library of Congress. And I've been partnering with colleagues from Michigan Council of Social Studies. And again, in this pandemic school year, you know, we had originally intended to come together and meet in physical space last August and have like a three-day launch and then a couple periodic meetings over Zoom throughout the year. Well, what it's turned into is that we have our monthly group workshop meetings where we're talking about critical and digital literacies as well as disciplinary literacies, sharing different tools and strategies and techniques, some of which come from the teaching primary sources uh, website, thinking about critical analysis of sources. We've looked at tools to build timelines. We've looked at tools to build um, uh, interactive uh, story maps. We've looked at tools to build um, juxtapositions of photos, like here's what this place looked like 100 years ago, and here's a photo of it now, and we can layer them over top of each other and write about them. And the whole goal of that grant, uh, well, and also, sorry, and also to connect to some of the work that you all do in West Michigan, and I know Eric is very familiar with the Grand Rapids Public Museum and, and other places, um, you know, we have visited virtually about seven or eight museums around the state and done tours and interactive activities looking at their digital collections. So thinking about how to help kids curate primary sources that are already digitized that they can then incorporate into their own projects. All of that is to say that the idea behind it is that, you know, social studies teachers um, are able to help students create these rich interactive maps, timelines, uh, you know, all kinds of different things, videos, someone's having their students create public service announcements, all these types of things uh, to take informed action, which is the language from the C3 framework. Like rather than just writing the, the typical essay, we're gonna take informed action through these other digital tools. And then a, a couple other just really quick examples that I can think, you know, one of my own students from CMU in our educational technology program is a math teacher, uh, teaches algebra, um, you know, ninth, 10th grade, not quite sure. Um, but anyway, you know, early high school. And one of the things she does is uses uh, an online tool graphing calculator called Desmos. But then what she does is she has her students record themselves talking through their problem solving. So it's that whole idea of like, show your work, but talk me through your work. And, you know, she creates a prompt for them, depending on, you know, whatever aspect of algebra they're studying and whatever, you know, the thing is about the linear equation or, you know, and I'm going to stop now because I'll just sound foolish because I don't know all this mathematics. 
but she'll give them, you know, a couple prompting questions after they've worked together. And so it's the two with and by, and then it's the reflect on. So they've done it together. They've worked with a partner. Then they have to show their work um, by recording that screencast. So those are just a couple examples, I think, of how, you know, disciplinary literacies can be enacted using some of the tools that we have available. And um, certainly we could talk about a few others if you'd like. So Trey, that makes me think about um, the this idea of the taking informed action, and um, we're all well, we have a separate podcast episode about project based learning, and how digital literacy certainly connects to project based learning, and PBL is about encouraging learners to take informed action, right, to address a problem, understand it, come up with solutions, work with um, community partners, and that's of course done in any content area, whether that's music or art or PE. But um, I can see even some of the things you were talking about, even with the primary sources grant that you're working with. So I'm thinking about um, art teachers and the ways in which they help students think about and curate artifacts, whether that's online or through museums, but even the juxtaposition of photos you were talking about, even befores and afters um, certainly could fit for art teachers. And then even for PE, I know I've had some um, teachers that have done some really cool work, even with the MyPlate, the online um, tools and resources connected to health and wellness and what that means and also mental health too. So I think there's, um, there's just a lot of opportunities but teachers have to understand what they're doing. And then of course, why they're doing it, like you said, and um, to not be afraid to try, as you said as well, that it's not every tool, you don't have to know everything but you have to be willing to try um, something new and then see how it goes. Did you wanna add something, Troy? I would add to that, you know, you just sparked another point here, and this is about numeracy, right? This is the moment to connect our math and science teachers into this part of the process too. And well, and, you know, social studies for that matter, because they look at data over time and trends and things like that. The biggest thing that I see happening, so here, here, here's to go back to a misconception point, maybe, you know, we have these wonderful tools that will allow us to create infographics. And by infographic, I mean something that has actual data numbers and then imports it into um, a, an aesthetically pleasing graphical design. Yet so many examples I see, they're ultimately just posters, which there was no number crunching behind it. There's not, there, the actual numeracy part of the infographic is lost. And yes, you need quotes and yes, you need icons and photos and great color schemes and stuff like that. And that, that is part of the, the process of making that infographic. But to me, this is that moment where, again, let's take informed action or let's do citizen science or let's compare our local data uh, about this sociological phenomenon to this larger data set. Uh, and let's let's compare and contrast and let's build our own charts and let's have these interactive charts, you know, pop up in our infographic, which we can continue to update from there. So I think there are so many opportunities to to blend, again, those disciplinary literacies, that analysis of data, all of those types of things, and then produce this final product. Um, and so, again, there's just one example of thinking about infographics and, and how that can be done in a more strategic way rather than just becoming something that's, you know, conveniently decorative, uh, it can actually be something that's really disciplinary uh, collaboration. Interdisciplinary collaboration, perhaps, is a better way to frame it. Mm -hmm. So given everything that you've shared so far, and that you're just given your experiences to working, um, certainly locally at Central Michigan University, but also working with teachers, both nationally and internationally, because you um, facilitate a lot of professional development, 
What excites you the most about the possibilities for integrating digital literacy in secondary classrooms? I'm most excited by the idea that we can continue to move toward creation. This idea that, yes, we do need to teach students the, these skills of critically consuming online you know, and digital information, however we wanted to define that broadly. But there, we are at a point right now, and I mean right now by the moment we are recording this at the end of the 2020-2021 academic year, where I know, I know we are never going to get to 100% access for everyone. I'm saying that as the, the blanket caveat statement right now. We're never going to quite get to 100% access. And yet, we are never going to get closer than where we are right now. There, there, is no, there is no way that in our professional lifetimes of the next 15 to 20 years, are more districts going to have more devices and more hotspots in more students' hands than we are right now in 2021. So what excites me about the possibilities? We have a moment. Uh, I, I don't want to be too grandiose here. I don't want to like, you know, go all Malcolm Gladwell and say we have a tipping point or something like that. Just to say that we are at a moment where quite literally the most number of students have the most number of devices. And unless we do something strategically and intentionally and proactively and critically and creatively, and I'll stop adding adverbs right now, I'll just say that unless we take this moment and do something with it, then it's just going to be more of the pre-canned curriculum, the self-paced, personalized with scare quotes, click through, do this, yep, it's school as it has always been. And there are a number of other ed tech critics who are saying these types of things in much smarter and more historically informed ways like Larry Cuban, Audrey Waters, Neil Selwyn. But my point here in the context of this conversation about disciplinary literacy is that we are never gonna have this opportunity to have the data collection tool and the production tool in so many kids' hands. And I really, really hope that we take advantage of it and, and, and just give students that little bit of creative freedom and see what they come up with. If we just did that over the next year or two, I think that we'd see some pretty amazing projects unfold. Troy, I feel like that was the pep talk and I am in. I like, this is the moment, let us rally. Uh, love that, Troy. And I, I hadn't thought of it that way before. And I see wisdom and insight in that. And as our listeners, many of whom are pre-service teachers are listening to this and getting all excited and enthusiastic um, to, to garner this moment and take the most advantage of it. Um, what's your advice? For those of us who, who want to capitalize on this and who want to do this better, um, what advice do you have, and particularly advice for beginning teachers or pre-service teachers? Right. Every time I talk to pre-service teachers, I always begin with the point of saying, thank you. We need you. We want to support you, which is why we're doing this podcast today, let alone all the work that the two of you are doing in your classes but also more broadly as we think about our work with other professional organizations and contributions you've both made recently to the Michigan Reading Association Journal and, and different things like that. But just more broadly, we, we want to create a space to recognize and honor and welcome and sustain new teachers. 
So my advice is to say, as hard as it is, as much as we have this conception of teacher is expert standing in front of the room. And I, I probably the reason you got into teaching, you know, for every hundred teacher, pre-service teachers, there's the one who was like, I hated school. I'm going to figure out how to do it better, which I applaud that person. But there's 99 of us who probably said, I had that one teacher who was so knowledgeable and so inspiring and so caring. And so, yes, wonderful. But that one teacher never did anything alone. And even though it looked like it was being done alone from your perspective in the third row in you know, your classroom, um, that teacher was most likely connected in professional networks, was attending, possibly even leading professional development events, reading professional journals, staying engaged in conversations like the one we're having today. And there are so many people out there who want to help. And yes, there are places where you can go and buy uh, lesson resources. There are there are a number of places, and in fact, you know, I sell books too. So I'm kind of throwing myself under the bus right now. Saying, yeah, there's books and stuff out there too, but there's so much available for free, and there are so many people that are willing to guide and mentor and support, and not just in the sense of oh, I started in my new school, I've been assigned this mentor. Maybe you'll get lucky. Maybe that person will be your person that you find in education and become your mentor. I had someone like that when I began, and I now realize how lucky I was. But chances are you're going to have to seek out mentorship, but it's not that hard. It feels a little awkward, but it's not that hard. We have things like Twitter, we have things like Zoom, we have uh, conferences, which hopefully will be coming back soon where we can meet a little bit more face-to-face. All you have to do is ask. It's vulnerable. It's risky. You see a teacher presenting at a conference. You're like, I'd like to learn a little bit more. Can I follow up with you? Can I email you? I guarantee you the person presenting at that conference will say, yes, follow up with me. I'd be happy to talk with you or else they wouldn't be presenting at the conference in the first place. So that's my advice is to you know, know that you're not alone. Know that you can reach out. Know that there are people that are willing to help. And most likely they're willing to do it because they care about the profession, they care about kids, and they, they care about you as uh, new teachers entering our field. So, and Troy and Deb and I have known each other for a while. So we're not, we're not new to the, um, the field and we're not new to teaching, but um, we don't always know everything about everybody. And so Troy, we have a fun question that we, are gonna, we ask everyone at the end of the episode. So are you ready for the fun question? You didn't prompt me for this one, so nope. let's see how it goes. <laughs> <laughs> so um, in our literacy courses, both Deb and I talk about the importance of acknowledging, affirming, and drawing on, a stu on students out of school literacy practices, which we mean by you know hobbies, sports, cultural or religious ethnic groups that they actively participate in and enjoy. So for you, what's one out of school literacy practice you enjoy? And you might actually be really good at too, but for sure, what do you enjoy? Oh, wow. Well, as you and I have shared a lot over the last probably two years or so, I've been kind of on a personal fitness journey. And I say this not to brag, but you asked. So so here's this new kind of literacy for me uh, is using the app on my phone to track where I'm at and to think about, you know, things like calories and steps and distance and and all these things. And then I don't do it often, but every once in a while I'll do a search for something online and I just see this whole world. I mean, I mean, 
I believe there is a magazine called Runner's World, if I'm not mistaken, or a website, right? Like there is a whole world. And I'll, and I, you know, periodically I'll, I'll see a news story. Um, tragically, there was the news story about the mar ultra marathon in China this last week where some of the runners uh, perished due to weather conditions. But you see other positive stories about things like that. So I'm starting to become a little more familiar with like the, the health and wellness and fitness um, literacies. Uh, which are very new to me at middle age. And it's kind of sad to say that, but I should probably have been more familiar with them for a longer time. Um, and yet at the same time, I'm, I'm just starting to get to, to know some of that stuff and to look beyond the hype, right? To look beyond the clickbait, to look at the stuff that's actually really helpful and will teach you something about fitness and will teach you something about motivation and will teach you something about proper form for running so you you know can continue to run for years and years I don't ever pretend I'll be a marathoner or a gourmet chef but I I, I have started to dip into those literacy worlds in the last two years Troy I love you can just tell you're a literacy scholar because you've identified lots of texts that you encounter that's something that we encourage our students to realize is that their communities of practice outside of school are very steeped in texts and reading and writing and speaking and listening encounters that many times we don't ever think of as texts, right? Because it's not sort of school sanctioned or within the school school boundary. And so I love that you just so naturally identified all of these different engagements with texts and communities and so on. And we wish you well as you continue your journey to become more of an insider into this, these different uh, wellness and running and active uh, communities. So Troy, thank you so much uh, for joining us in today's episode. For those of you listening in, thank you for joining us as well. Be sure to follow All About Literacy on your favorite podcast app so you don't miss any upcoming episodes. We are Deb Van Dynan and Erica Hamilton, and we wish you all beautiful adventures as we keep learning all about literacy. Thank you. Mm -hmm.